0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Later on, our co-producer Jennifer Ryan will be joining me to speak about a very inspiring octogenarian who, after breaking her neck just over a year ago, realised she had unfinished business and is this weekend holding her first ever exhibition. First, though, Roisin Ingle is here. Roisin. Yes, you went to a very unusual opera.
1: I know, I tell you, I don't go to operas and most operas, if I've ever been to them, I tend to leave at half-time and that's how bad I am, that I call it half-time instead of the interval. I'm just, I'm a Nick when it comes to operas. Um, but recently, my partner, Johnny, has discovered late in life, or in middle age, some new love of opera. And so he's been to Aida and he's been to Bluebird's Castle and he, he's finding it all very moving. So when I got an invitation to this opera, I thought... Normally I would have said no opera and I would have put up a big cross sign get thee away from me but I thought uh, Johnny would like that so I decided to say yes and I'm so glad I said yes. It's called Banished. It's written by a guy called Stephen McNeff and it was put on and it's being put on until Saturday in the Kilmainham jail. So immediately that kind of piqued my interest because you're in one of the largest unoccupied uh, prisons in Europe and you can imagine the atmosphere. And the story of Banished is about these women who towards the end of the 19th century were sent off to Australia on these ships and how these women under terrible circumstances, including all sorts of things like you can imagine—violence from the from the um, crew of the ships, and rape, and just you know the the sort of lack of food, and just the really difficult circumstances—how they managed to survive. But the amazing thing about the opera is, you know, you're sitting in Kilmainham Jail with all the cells all around you. The audience is on two sides, and they give you uh, blankets. um to have because it's quite cold in there. So you're sitting all kind of huddled up and the performance is happening right almost on top of you. They use all the things like the staircases, the balconies. There's an orchestra there playing in this really gloomily lit kind of amazing haunting place.
0: If if listeners could see me, they'd see you making this bare teeth emoji.
1: Really?
0: Yes because
1: it sounds unspeakably bleak. Yeah, but do you know what's really funny? I think for me, what was very uplifting about this was seeing these around 20 young women who form this ensemble cast. There's three or four male actors and they play the kind of quite, you know, in some cases, quite brutal figures in in the opera. But these girls, these women were just fantastic, not just at the singing, because obviously it's an opera, beautiful singing, but the way they embodied this. I mean, you really felt like you were on this ship with, with these women. And, And the ensemble nature of it, the fact that there were so many different characters, but you still got to see the different people and who they were. And yes, it's very bleak. I mean, there there is really horrible scenes in it, but there's also a lot of black humour. And then it's just it's just great to be at a thing where most of the people in the thing are women. It's just very unusual. And I, I loved that. It's a really bleak subject matter. But I think I suppose when you go back into women's history, a lot of it is quite grim, unfortunately. And that's the nature of it. But uh, anyway, it was great because the uh, president was going because it was the premiere, and I think it was the world premiere of this of this opera. And uh, Michael D Higgins arrived. We all had to get there a bit early so that we could be there before he came. And so in Michael D comes with Sabina Higgins, and a lovely moment was uh, all of a sudden the cast who were hidden away—you couldn't see them—started to sing Our Own Naveen in their beautiful operatic voices while Michael T and we all stood there spontaneously well that was obviously arranged but it was unexpected and I think just hearing the um, anthem In Kilmainham Jail like sung in oh, such yes. an exquisite way was also added to the whole magic oh, of yes, the evening I can imagine so I don't know if yeah. all the tickets are sold out but I think if, if if it sounds like something I mean I know Cathy you were saying it's too bleak but it really no, not was not too bleak no most no no you're, you're winning me
0: around a little bit if somebody wants to go and see
1: this who yeah. did they do they, they ring Kilmainham well, tickets no, it's come, it's on. It's on. If you Google "banished opera" and it's the Royal Irish Academy of Music, where the women—I must give them a shout out because the music came from them and the singers—and they were just fantastic, Kathy. And it just gives you like there's so much talent. And I suppose in operatic terms, it wouldn't be something I'd be too familiar with. But seeing these twenty extraordinarily talented women was just really wonderful. So. And actually, that building. For the yeah. building alone, and I hadn't I been there for years well as well, worked. Cathy, yes. So it really made me it's think. So I'd better go back there restored. for a proper tour and bring the kids yes. and all that kind of thing. Yes, it's, on, it's. I think it's one of our most visited um, sites. Actually, it is. It is. It is. And so look, I just need to give a to shout system. out to Banish the Opera by Stephen. Maclean. All right, here's to Banish. Yes, not so nice. bleak in many ways, <laughs> and very blackly humorous in some ways too. <laughs> actually, I said to the writer as I worked out, because I, I reckoned it was him. I said, this is actually funnier than I would have thought." And he said, "Oh, you got the jokes. He's English. You got the jokes, did you?" And I said, "Yeah, I think I got the jokes." because you know, it's hard and also the other thing is most operas you imagine them all being sung in different languages Italian, French or whatever this is all in English so I liked that It's
0: very good Did Johnny enjoy it?
1: Johnny did enjoy It's up to it, his yeah. very
0: high standards Yeah exactly
1: Board. The opera buff
0: <laughs> <laughs> Now a phenomenon of the week Yes Good news from a marketing campaign for a change
1: I think so. You know, they did a good thing because we're often on this podcast giving out about various people. If we not mentioning any names, hunky dory. Do you remember that horrible one? But anyway, um, Gillette have come up with this marketing campaign. You know, you know, the famous Gillette ads of we would have watched all those years. The best, the best a man
0: be- can get. I wasn't
1: going to attempt it because, but thank you very much. The best a man can get. They've kind of subverted that and they're asking the question, is this the best a man can get? And I think this video, it's a two or three minute video. It's directed by a woman. And it involves all the kind of Me Too stuff and various montages of all those things. And it's posing the question of can men do better and showing ways in which men's behaviour is really important in terms of role modelling for younger people coming up, younger men. And how isn't it a good idea if we all try and behave better? And it caused war, Kathy.
0: It did. And I'm trying to work out why. I mean, just to quote a few lines from it, we believe in the best in men to say the right thing, to act the right way. Some already are, which is acknowledging there are good men out there, in ways big and small. Men need to hold other men accountable. Some do, but not enough. Making the same old excuses... Boys will be boys, this
1: gallery of men say. Yeah, there's that barbecue scene where they're all standing in front of the barbecues because obviously only men barbecue. That's you know.
0: Because the boys watching today are the men of tomorrow. Now, I cannot for the life of me see a thing wrong with well, this. Well, I think
1: if we had Piers Morgan on the phone, he'd tell us what's wrong with it, I think. Well, he did, didn't <laughs> he? He did tell us and some other uh, Piers Morgan
0: heads in <laughs> Ireland also told us. Roisin, what are they telling us?
1: Well, they're saying the that this demonises men and makes out that maleness is a bad thing inherently that, that being a man, but it's not because as you clearly said, that's not what they're saying at all. All they're saying is, you know, and lots of men have come out in fairness and said this is ridiculous, you must be very sensitive if someone's saying maybe we can improve things, to be taking it so, uh, to being so defensive about it. Um, I don't know, people are maybe snowflakes, I don't know, they they use that word a lot, these people. I think they're being quite snowflakey about it.
0: Yeah, much older snowflakes. Yeah. In sense. Let's just take this out of the millennial category and into the, what 40s, 50s kind of snowflakes. Yeah,
1: we had a piece by Finian Murphy um online yesterday about, about it and he was talking about how this is a really good conversation and to take t- the fact that it's got so much attention even if some of it was from people really throwing their I saw last night on Twitter some people throwing their Gillette razors and down the toilet and then there was a lot of funny responses by people like oh that'll be your plumber when you're ringing up your plumber saying what did you do well I threw my shaver my shaver down the toilet so there's a lot of a no no more Gillette for me type of behavior going on um but we had a piece by Finian Murphy Finian was just saying it's really good, important for men and for women that we have this conversation. It can only be good if we talk about it because the, the narrow definitions of maleness that we've been used to over the years have not served us necessarily. Because as we know, there are all types of men, all types of women, and we should all be allowed to express ourselves in various different ways, and we shouldn't be pigeonholed. This is what a man does. This is what a woman does. And that's all that this is trying to kind of promote.
0: And it's encouraging men to step in in the most gentle ways. Yeah. Actually, as as a, as a video, it is marvellous and that that encompasses so many nuances in, in a couple of minutes basically. Also, I mean, I suppose one of the other reasons Russian, that some of us might have started off with a little bit of cynicism was it is a marketing yeah, campaign.
1: At the end of the day, Gillette are rubbing their hands in glee because it has given them so much attention and we can't forget that either. It is an important point.
0: We can't forget it but it's a fine piece of work and they could have chosen to do something else with it. And it had over, over by the way, according to Finian's piece, it had over 10 million views. Yeah, by Wednesday afternoon. So, fair play, Gillette.
1: I think fair play. We're going to give them a big, shiny gold star from the Women's Podcast to Gillette saying, thank you very much. More of this, please. Other marketing companies, take note because they can be really, they can do the opposite sometimes, these campaigns. They can actually cause damage and I think what Finian's saying is this is a really positive message. It keeps the conversation going and it doesn't look like this is just a video for Gillette. Like they've said that they're going to be so careful that anything they do, nothing that they do kind of serves to promote that kind of toxic masculinity or do anything like that. So I think that's wonderful that a company has, they've obviously, this wouldn't be something that will just happen overnight. This would have been a really thought out uh, campaign. So. And it is.
0: And we encourage everybody to look at it
1: and to echo the message of Gillette, we believe in the best in men. We do. And there's and the so many problems. great men and we love them all. So that's Gillette. But what have you got on the podcast today?
0: Today I'm talking to the Egyptian journalist, author and activist Mona El-Tahawi about Rahaf Mohamed, the Saudi woman who captured the world's attention by barricading herself in a Thai hotel room after fleeing abuse in her own country. Mohamed was attempting to escape abuse inflicted by her family and making her way to Australia with a stopover in Bangkok. She had a visa for Australia but at Bangkok airport she was detained by the Thai immigration authorities who then placed her in a hotel room ready to be deported back to Saudi Arabia. From that room she tweeted about her plight and it magically worked. Today she is safe in Canada... And Mona El-Tahawi, who played no small part in her escape to freedom by amplifying Rahaf's voice, translating her tweets and contacting human rights organisations, is with her in Canada. And I was delighted to have the chance to speak to Mona about what's been going on. Mona, we'll we'll go straight into it because I'll try not to keep you too long. But can you tell us something about Rahaf Mohammed and why that story has become so iconic for women around the world?
2: I think the wonderful thing about Rahaf is that here is this 18-year-old woman who is mature, you know, way beyond her years, who knew exactly what she wanted. I mean, when I met her, and she's said this in interviews before, um, she said that she has been planning to escape and seek asylum since she was 16 because she wanted to be free. She wanted to live independently and freely and demanded to be treated with the dignity and respect that she deserved as a woman. And that is a revolutionary statement for a young woman anywhere across the world to make, let alone in one of the most conservative, one of the most extremely patriarchal societies in the world, which is her country of birth, Saudi Arabia. So I think the the, the fact that she is so bold and courageous and has so much gumption that, you know, she managed to escape and then barricaded herself in a hotel room in Bangkok. I mean, this is the stuff of superheroes. She's like superwoman. And then when she got asylum and and went to Canada, because Canada was the first country to offer her asylum, she was so poised. She was so articulate and eloquent in the, the two or three interviews that she gave and then yesterday she gave, um, she spoke at a news conference in which she clearly said, um, I've always wanted the right to live as I want, to travel as I want, to marry who I want. And I have that now. And I will fight for women all over the world, especially in my country, to have the same right. Thank you. Please leave me to lead my life now as an ordinary young woman. Goodbye. Wow. Wow. She's a true revolutionary.
0: Good for a half. Now, as you say, Mona, she's only 18. She wasn't just fleeing from a system that was kind of oppressive. As she talks about having been beaten by her mother and her brother and living under Saudi Arabia's guardianship system. Can you tell us a bit about the, 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 the restrictions involved in the guardianship system?
2: Yes, I think the other reason that um, Rahaf's story is so important is that what she went through is a microcosm of what all Saudi women go through. And she has forced onto the global consciousness this realization by the world finally of, like, you know, they do what to women in Saudi Arabia? Now, I moved there as a teenager with my family and I've spent many years there. So I'm very familiar with that system. And I call the guardianship system a form of gender apartheid. South Africa, under racial apartheid, of course, was considered a pariah state that was boycotted as it should have been, you know, by by the entire world. And Saudi Arabia, unlike the racial apartheid of South Africa, imposes a form of gender apartheid by which, through the guardianship laws, um, male guardians basically control almost every aspect of a woman's life. A woman needs a male guardian's permission to issue a passport, to travel, to marry, to leave prison, to, in many instances um, to work, to get health care. I mean, it, it's, it renders a woman a perpetual minor her entire life. So what Rahaf went through is just a reminder of what so many other Saudi women go through and i think to give it an even more sinister spin for generations now saudi feminists and women's rights activists have been fighting to dismantle the guardianship system and now we have this new ruler in saudi arabia the saudi crown prince mohammed bin salman who has fooled the world by this persona of the emancipator of women so now we have to ask what has he emancipated them from if women are running away and seeking asylum and also Why in May of last year did he crack down on feminists and send to prison where they have been tortured more than a dozen feminists and women's rights activists who've been fighting to end guardianship laws? So I think Rahaf's story is poignant and moving, but she forces the world to ask what is happening to women in Saudi Arabia? And Mona, just, just
0: dwelling on that for a moment, I mean, one of the most, the most paradoxical things about that publicity around women being allowed to drive, say, in Saudi Arabia, at the same time we know that the women who had begun that campaign were locked up. How is that explained internally to, to Saudi Arabians?
2: Yes, exactly. Those are exactly the activists and feminists that were subjected to an unprecedented crackdown on feminists in that country. And and the crown prince ordered the detention of three generations of feminists. Just to give you an idea of how long Saudi women have been fighting, the world often asks, well, where are the Saudi feminists? They're there. They're now in prison. And the excuse that the Saudi regime gave, even though these activists have never been charged with anything, and they have never been put on trial, and we're now hearing they've been subjected to awful forms of torture, one of them has been subjected to waterboarding, which is a form of torture usually associated with terrorism suspects. So this you know, tells you that for the Saudi regime, feminism is a form of terrorism. And that's exactly what the regime has used an ex- as an excuse for the crackdown. They have plastered the photographs of these imprisoned and tortured activists in Saudi media and they've called them traitors. They have accused them of working with foreign enemies, which is usually code for working with Qatar, with which Saudi Arabia has had now a two or three year dispute so it's basically smearing of these activists and a rumor campaign but no charges and no trial and if you ask me why they were detained my answer is that the crown prince wanted to send a very clear message that activism which is what these feminists and women's rights activists had been engaged in for decades to lift the driving ban and the guardianship system he wanted to say Activism doesn't work. You don't get rights by activism. You get rights because I give them to you. It's outrageous,
0: um, Mona. Getting back to Rahaf, uh, can we talk a little bit about how she escaped, um, and and why she has become such a global news story? Uh, she was in Thailand. Uh, she had been on a trip to Kuwait with her family, and she fled onto a flight to Bangkok on January 5th, saying she intended to take a connecting flight to Australia and had an Australian visa. Now, can you take up the story from there?
2: Yes, I think it's also important to mention that the reason she was able to go to Bangkok from Kuwait is that Kuwait is one of the few countries in that Gulf region where women don't need a male guardian's permission to leave the country. So that worked to her advantage. When she got to Bangkok, and this is actually quite sadly very common, the Saudi authorities, because her family had alerted them, um, told the Thai authorities that there was a young Saudi woman basically on the loose and a representative of the Saudi embassy met Rahaf at Bangkok airport and confiscated her ID and her ticket onward to Australia and the Thai authorities cancelled her visa to Thailand. And so she was told that you will be forcibly repatriated to Kuwait, where she would then be taken back or forcibly deported rather to Kuwait, where she would then be repatriated to Saudi Arabia.
0: Can I just stop you there for a moment, Mona? What is the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Thailand? Why did Thailand think they had the authority to do this?
2: well the saudi royal family has a lot of connections with governments around the world and i'm guessing because thailand is also under a monarchy thailand has a monarchy but it's also under military rule um the saudi authorities have very good relationships with many of the of the regimes in southeast asia because there's a lot of tourism and there's a, there's a lot of business and there are also a lot of expat workers from that part of the world who need contracts to work in Saudi Arabia. And as a particular there was one case in 2017 that was a horrific example of exactly the kind of pull that Saudi Arabia has with those Southeast Asian countries when another young Saudi woman called Dina Ali tried to escape again via Kuwait, again onward to Australia to seek asylum but via Manila Airport in the Philippines. And again, the Saudi authorities contacted the Filipino authorities. They stopped Dina Ali at the airport. They detained her until two of her uncles arrived, beat her, taped her mouth shut, bound her arms and legs together, and dragged her onto a plane back home. Now, this awful scenario from 2017 was paramount on our minds when we were trying to help Rahaf um, you know, 10 days ago, everyone was saying, please help Rahaf, don't let her turn into another Dina Ali. So it's clear the Saudi authorities have clout with those regimes. And then after Rahaf was taken into the supervision of the United Nations High Commission for Refugees...
0: How, now tell me,
2: before we get to that
0: point, mm-hmm. what happened between... So the Thais uh, cancelled her visa, um, yes. and then what happened? Tell us what happened, Mona.
2: And then she was told that you will be forcibly deported on a plane to Kuwait. I think it was like five hours later. And they put her in a hotel room, an airport hotel room, to await this forcible deportation. And this incredibly courageous and resourceful young woman barricaded herself into into her hotel room. And she began tweeting and she began posting videos of herself saying, I'm a young Saudi woman. My life is under threat. If they take me back to Saudi Arabia, I will be killed. Help me escape. I'm claiming asylum. I, am, I want refugee status. I want the UNHCR to come and see me. So all she had at that point was Twitter? All she had was her smartphone and Twitter and only 24 followers on Twitter. Now, thanks to her incredible network of Saudi friends and feminists who sent out the alarm, one of them wrote to me, and she said, Mona, please pay attention to this young woman at Bangkok airport. And so I began to translate her tweets into English. And I put them in a Twitter thread and, you know, sent out, amplified her voice to my audience. And then I contacted um Activists at various human rights groups that I knew, Amnesty Human Rights Watch. I contacted some journalists that I knew, but all night long, it was my night, but it was early morning for her because of the time difference. I was just translating as often as I could. I was in touch with her by private message on Twitter, and I was subtitling some of the videos that she was making in Arabic. And then that's just by way of just explaining what I did, many other people across the world. Rahav became this cause for like global concern. It was one of the most beautiful and moving uh, example of the whole world coming together and heavily invested in the well-being of this young woman. And it worked. Hashtag save Rahaf. Exactly. Yes. And so that that then took us. So during this stage where everyone was amplifying her voice, um, Human Rights Watch then picked up the case and they began to tweet about it. And they reached out to local activists and journalists but none of the journalists in thailand would go to her airport hotel and the most important thing was to have someone there on the ground to bear witness so that what happened to dina ali wouldn't happen to rahaf so finally an australian journalist called sophie mcneil bought a ticket on her own dime and flew from sydney to bangkok and sneaked into rahaf's hotel room pretending she was so she pretended to the thai authorities she was a tourist And, you know, being like a white blonde woman, they didn't guess otherwise. And she snuck into Rahaf's room and stayed with her for the entire time until UNHCR finally came and took Rahaf into their supervision. And that's when the entire world kind of globally exhaled, because that's when we knew that Rahaf was safe, because Thailand up until then had a terrible reputation of forcing back refugees.
0: Mona, what an extraordinary story. And from there, then um, she was uh, she had she became officially a refugee.
2: Well, f- from there, then the UNHCR took her out of the airport hotel into their supervision, and they said, "We are now studying her case because they determine what they say is um, is she a legitimate quote unquote refugee." Now, I, I personally reject all of these labels. I believe that everyone has a right. Um, to move anywhere and claim asylum, but the, but there are bureaucratic steps that the UNHCR has to take. So they sat with her and they um, looked into her case. And a few days, I think two days later, they said um, she is indeed a quote unquote legitimate refugee. And they called on a country to offer her asylum. So at first, Australia said that it was considering offering her asylum, and then Canada stepped in and processed her asylum papers quicker which is why she ended up going to Canada
0: and when she arrived she had to she was assigned a private security guard mona um because of the threats she had received on social media so social media isn't
2: entirely positive No, you know, social media, honestly, is like what we call the real world. It's very much a real world, but it's online. You know, just as there are threats that you get in the real world and good people in the real world, they obviously exist online as well. Now, Rahaf's case is also complicated and made more dangerous. Not just because of the Saudi guardianship laws and an abusive family, which which are both bad enough, but she has also very publicly said she has left Islam, which in most Muslim majority countries is incredibly dangerous. In several Muslim majority countries, you could be killed, you could be. Um, disowned. And Saudi Arabia actually has a law against renouncing your religion, even though it hasn't actually been applied to anyone in several years. But that made it especially dangerous for her. So for those multiple reasons, Rahaf does need a security guard, because she's definitely in the spotlight. And the concern also is that her father is said to be a governor of a province in Saudi Arabia, which means that he's a very important man with muscle and connection from the regime. Now, something that very sinister that happened is also a reminder of the dangers that Saudi women face, those women who want to escape, is that soon after UNHCR took Raf into their supervision. A Saudi official um, had a news conference at Bangkok airport in which he actually said when she arrived in Bangkok, she had a very small following on Twitter, and within hours, she gained thousands of followers. You should have taken her smartphone instead of her passport. Now, that is a really sinister statement to make because nobody has the right to take anyone's passport or smartphone. And he's basically encouraging the Thai authorities that should another Saudi woman try to escape through your airport, confiscate her phone so that she cannot call out for help. Is that the same
0: guy, Mona, who said that he had been surprised by some country's incitement of some Saudi female delinquents to rebel against the values of their families?
2: Um, He could have. I mean, I, I, I don't know, to be honest, but I know that that is a very, very common thing that has been said on social media, where an orchestrated attack, and it is known that the Saudi crown prince has in place, thanks to a senior aide of his, Um, the ability to use orchestrated trolling attacks, what they call a cyber army, the Saudis call them flies, against opponents and any form of dissent. Now, I myself have come under this 10-day relentless orchestrated attack simply for helping to amplify Rahaf's voice. So you can imagine what Saudis experience through these orchestrated attacks. And the theme is that um, I brainwashed this young woman into running away. The theme is that the world is politicizing these cases of young women who are just, quote unquote, being abused by their families, i.e. this is a private family matter. This is an old trope, of course, with domestic violence, where it's just a private family matter. But of course, in Saudi Arabia, the guardianship system makes it a state-sanctioned matter as well. So the Saudis have, yeah, that's definitely the drum, that that kind of like the drum roll that, that is out there, that the world is basically out to kidnap and ruin their young women and steal them away from their families.
0: Mona, what are they saying about you on Saudi television?
2: oh my goodness, this I'm especially proud of. So the largest Arab media company is a company called MBC, Middle East Broadcasting Corporation. It was the first 24-hour Arabic language satellite channel. And in 2016... The Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, wanted to buy this channel, but the the owner of the channel said that he was offering a price that was too low. And very soon after, the owner of this channel and several shareholders were taken into detention at the Ritz-Carlton for 83 days, along with other opponents of the Saudi crown prince. And very soon after, it's believed that the Saudi crown prince just took the, the, the satellite channel for himself. So this is by way of explaining that Um, This channel, which had a report about Saudi women who are escaping, um, is definitely under regime control, specifically the control of the Saudi crown prince, who is the de facto leader. And two days ago, they had a news report in which they they said, um, Mona Al-Tahawi, a woman who says she hates men and who has said she wants people to have sex on the street. Good Lord, did you ever say that? You know what? I don't <laughs> mind claiming both of those things, but I have never actually said I want people to have sex on the street. But That's by pretty liberal, Mona. a point of pride for me. <laughs> so they are broadcasting to an incredibly massive, to millions of people who are audiences of this channel that I basically brainwashed her half into running away and they're blaming me. For her escape. So this was NBC two days ago. And then today, I found out from the Associated Press correspondent who covers Saudi Arabia, that one of their state-sanctioned newspapers uh, has a report headlined, the pornographer activist who welcomed Drahoff in Canada, colon, 12 facts about the red-haired woman. And the pornographer activist with the red hair would be myself, of course. So it is incredible the kind of things that they're saying about me. And I think I must be the most hated woman in Saudi Arabia. And I am proud, I tell you.
0: Well, Mona, it's not your first brush with authority via social media either. I mean, you were in Tahir Square uh, during the Arab Spring uh, and you used social media to get yourself out of trouble
2: I did. I wasn't actually there during the 18 days that toppled Hosni Mubarak. But later that year, I was there during a a very iconic protest against the military regime, which took over Egypt until we had elections. And this was a five day protest in which at least 40 people were killed and 300 were injured, including myself. And Egyptian riot police during that protest, a friend of mine and I made it to the front lines. They beat me and broke my left arm and broke my right hand and sexually assaulted me and threatened me with gang rape. And they detained the, the interior ministry detained me for six hours and military intelligence detained me for another six hours in which I was blindfolded and interrogated with the two broken limbs. And during my detention, I managed using the phone of an activist who would come in to try and strike a truce with the police, to tweet out beaten, arrested, interior ministry. And I was told afterwards that hashtag Freemono was trending within 15 minutes. Al Jazeera and The Guardian reported on my beating and detention. And the State Department wrote back to me and said, we hear you and we're working on this. So I understand the power of Twitter in galvanizing the world to help. And I often say that Twitter has saved my life twice, because that was one time when I was beaten and detained by Egyptian authorities. And the second time was a year later in 2012, when I was arrested in the New York subway for spray painting over a racist ad. And I was in police detention in New York City for 24 hours. And the next morning when I was arraigned, Um, a a, a lawyer came to represent me, a man called Stanley Cohen. And he said to me, listen, I don't know who you are, but the Occupy movement sent me 200 people from the Occupy movement last night, told me you have to go represent Mona. And he represented me pro bono for two years until the, the judge in charge of my case dropped the charges in the interest of justice. So I'm a massive fan of Twitter and the way it galvanizes the world to help. And Mona, you're in
0: the middle of a book. I gather we've we've interrupted an all-nighter. Uh, you're hitting the last
2: few chapters of it, the last chapter of it. What is the book about? Yeah, I'm actually right. I'm, I'm like in the middle of the last chapter, so it, I'm almost there. The book is called The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls. And I call it my Molotov cocktail to be thrown at the patriarchy. And what the book is about is all the things that women and girls are not supposed to want to do or to be. And the seven sins are anger, attention, profanity, ambition, power, violence and lust. And each chapter is about one of those sins. And I talk about the importance of those They're obviously not sins. I think they're great things. But I'm playing on the seven deadly sins, obviously. And I talk about the importance of women and girls assuming and taking all those things as the way to defy, disobey and disrupt patriarchy, which I call feminism in 3D.
0: Mona, I can't let you go without asking you about the Princess Latifa story and Mary mm-hmm. Robinson's role in that. Um have, have you some particular insight into this and, and um how is the young woman and what's your take on it?
2: I mean when I when I heard that Mary Robinson um, had gone at the request of Princess Latifa's mother and, and that picture was posted between the two of them, I have to say I was really disappointed. Because I had always considered Mary Robinson, you know, as a as a role model and as a you know someone that feminists and women's rights activists are a lot across the world looked up to. So I'm not really sure what happened there between Latifa's mother and Mary Robinson. But you know, from from everything I've heard, whether it's the media coverage of what happened or the people who tried to help Latifa, like for example, via social media while I was trying my best to help Rahaf. I heard from a woman called Tina, who was on the boat that Princess Latifa was trying to escape on. And it was on that boat that in Indian waters that the authorities stopped the boat. And again, this is a reminder of how the Gulf monarchies have so much sway with governments around the world that the request of the UAE, um, Indian authorities stopped the boat and, you know, took out. Latifa and I heard from Tina on Twitter saying you know I hope you will remember Princess Latifa's case because you know she's still a prisoner of her family now also remember that Latifa is not the only daughter of the prime minister of Dubai who has tried to escape because she, she had a she had a sister who was escaped to Cambridge England and who was abducted from Cambridge England and forcibly repatriated and when a police official from the UK tried to go To the United Arab Emirates to investigate, he wasn't given a visa to investigate it. So I believe all of those who say that Latifa is being held against her will, I wish that Mary Robinson had not gone there and allowed herself to be used in that way.
0: So Mona, what, what, is to be done. I mean, they they those states seem to have so much power. I mean, one of the very interesting insights coming from your from from, from your report there is is how powerful these people are. Um, I mean, for example, Riyadh has responded to to um, Rahaf's, uh, refuge in Canada by freezing all new trade with Canada and expelling the ambassador over its interference in the kingdom's domestic affairs. I mean, what can people do? apart from talking about it and raising awareness?
2: Well, the Saudis had already done that to Canada last year. It was before Rahaf's case. This is why the Saudis are now accusing many people, specifically Canada and myself, as you know, the feminist who encourages sex in the street. But that report that, that said I had said that um, also accused Canada of politicising Rahaf's case because last summer, the Canadian foreign minister who was seen you know, with Rahaf when Rahaf arrived in toronto the canadian foreign minister tweeted that saudi arabia must immediately release the women's rights activists that we'd spoken of earlier who has who have been detained by the saudi crown prince and who have been tortured so when can when the canadian foreign minister made that statement the saudis expelled the canadian ambassador um it suspended all t- business and trade with saudi arabia um, ended the scholarships of around 7,000 Saudi students in Canadian universities and also called back home Saudi doctors who were training in in Canadian hospitals. So relationship, the relations between Saudi Arabia and Canada were, were terrible to begin with. Now that Canada has given asylum to Rahaf, they're the, the even worse if that's possible. So I think, you know, I really think we need to start talking about the Saudi regime in ways that emphasize just how bad it is. So we have to start saying things like it imposes gender apartheid in the way that we talked about racial apartheid in Saudi Arabia. The fact that it killed a journalist, a Saudi journalist called Jamal Khashoggi, in the Saudi consulate in Turkey in October, you know, it, we also have to start talking about it being murderous. The fact that it's, it's torturing um, human rights and women's rights activists and it has jailed, so many dissidents, we have to start talking about it as a country that um, crushes dissent in the same way that the Soviet Union did. Instead of using gulags that the Soviet Union did, they're using their massive prison system. And we have to also start talking about the way that it has used its money to basically silence the Arab media and use it as propaganda tools. So when you look at all of those things and you add on top of it to religion, because Saudi Arabia is home to the two holiest sites for Muslims, we also then have to push Muslim countries into standing up to the Saudis and demanding that those two holy sites become international cities so that the Saudi Arabians don't use them to manipulate Muslim countries into silence over the human rights abuses. Western governments must stop selling weapons to to this murderous and regime that tortures people and that imposes gender apartheid. And the Western media must stop tiptoeing around this regime. Start calling it for what it is, gender apartheid and a form of terrorism among anyone who dissents.
0: I suppose what all this is saying in the end, Mona, is what an extraordinary young woman Rahaf Mohammed is. How is she doing, do you know?
2: Uh, Well, I went to see her in Toronto two days after she arrived and she looked great. She was talking about, you know, looking forward to learning English And, you know, she gave an interview the day after that to Sophie McNeil, the Australian journalist who had gone to to stay with her in her hotel at Bangkok airport. And she told Sophie in the first interview since her, um, asylum in Canada that she hopes to fight for women's rights in Saudi Arabia and all across the world and that she believes what she did is going to encourage many other Saudi women to escape. So, you know, as I keep saying, Rahaf really is a revolutionary. And if you go on social media and you see the way Saudi women especially have reacted, so many of them are saying, well done, Rahaf. I wish that was me, Rahaf. Thank you, Rahaf, for making this work. And Saudi women on social media are incredible. They're using it as a way to fight back against gender apartheid. They're using it as a way to fight back head-to-head with the men in a system that definitely disadvantages them. But they will never be silenced. Saudi feminists are some of the most courageous feminists I have ever encountered. And the world must listen to them because they are engaged in a fight against one of the most extreme form of patriarchy gender apartheid, remember, that this world has ever seen.
0: Would you go so far, Mona, as to say there's a mini revolution going on?
2: Oh, you know, absolutely. If you just look at the way Saudi women are all over social media, because, you know, the the day after UNHCR uh, accepted Rahaf as a case to consider, Saudi women went on social media and started a hashtag that trended, that said, End the guardianship laws, or we will all migrate. I mean, they're out there, you know, settings for 919 days they have been tweeting every day. Saudi women demand the end of guardianship laws. So this use of social media is really important because in authoritarian states like Saudi Arabia and so many of others around the world, where you don't have access to mainstream media or the political institutions. When you go on social media and you express yourself, that is a form of revolution because you're saying I count. To say I count in in an authoritarian state is revolution.
0: Mona, thank you so much for talking to us in what is basically the middle of the night for you. Good luck with your book. We'll be looking out for it and hope to talk to you then. Thank you.
2: It was a pleasure to talk with you.
0: I'm joined now by our co-producer, Jennifer Ryan, a multitasker. Jennifer, you've been talking to a very impressive woman this week who has decided to hold her very
3: first art exhibition at the age of 84. Yes, Cathy, Eileen Toomey. She's a Cork woman born in Skibbereen in 1934, but she moved to Dublin in the 60s and her daughter Siobhan got in touch with us here to tell us about her first art exhibition which she is holding this weekend in her house and I went out to Eileen's house in Donnybrook to meet her earlier this week. She told me that she always loved to draw as a child but it wasn't until her 40s that she began to learn how to paint.
4: I did classes with a a chap called Tom Cullen. he was a well recognised artist here in Dublin and it was oil paints he was doing and I really loved it, I loved doing it and I discovered I could do it And uh, the way he painted you, you painted a picture a day. So you always had a picture going home. And I couldn't believe that I could do that. But I did that for about 12 months. Then I was living in Blessington and it was awkward coming up to Dublin. When I came back to Dublin to live eventually from Blessington... Uh, I went to another artist in Bagot Street called Ryan Byrne and there I discovered Paul Henry and I did a few (laughs) paintings of his. And I really enjoyed his style and I loved his skies and I loved his blue mountains, which I didn't believe were blue until I went to Connemara and I saw they were actually blue. You know, I couldn't believe they were blue, I thought... These are manufactured that colour. From then on, I got interested really in all everything about Paul Henry.
0: Well, you may think you don't know Paul Henry paintings, but you certainly do. If you Google one, you'll know what I mean. Those blue mountains really are something that stay in the mind. Jenny, why did Eileen decide to hold an exhibition now after all these years?
3: Well, last year... In July, she sold her first painting for a 100 quid to a friend of a friend without really trying to, and it sort of planted the seed in her mind to throw an exhibition. I think she probably never really imagined that she would, but once she started thinking about it, she really wanted to do it. And what had happened before that, though, is that she had a long recovery from a bad fall in her house, and during that time, she said she realised that she had unfinished business.
4: Well... No, Nobody wants to die, really, do they? And I both, I'm like everybody else, that um, I have no desire to go to the other side anyway soon. So, uh, to keep myself positive, I was saying things like that. All the doctors are surprised that I seem to come through everything. I mean, I had a quadruple bypass about six years ago, seven years ago now, I suppose. And I mean, I've had breast removed. I've had my knees done, broken many shoulders and wrists and everything. Up to now, I've survived them all, and my doctors are very surprised.
0: I'm not surprised, Jenny. She sounds like the original Bionic Woman. No, she? <laughs> she's amazing. She's
3: amazing. And we were sitting when she was talking to me that time. We were sitting in the room where she had had fallen. That day, and she said she, you know, she showed me the city. She just banged her head off the city, and whatever happened, she broke her neck in two places. And she was really like flat on her back for a long time. So it's pretty amazing that she pulled herself up from that, I have to say. Along with all the other stuff she's just described. How many paintings is she exhibiting? She's unbelievable there are f- around 50 paintings that are hanging up in her house at the moment. There's some in the living room where I mentioned there where she suffered that fall which I think it has a quite a nice irony to it and as well as in her kitchen up along her stairs and she paints with acrylics and watercolours and she said that's work that she told me she can comfortably do at home without, you know, because oil paints, you can't really use them in the home, you have to have a proper setup. but uh, she explained to me why.
4: Most of the ones there I didn't. Six months really because I got enthusiastic about it once I decided maybe I'd have an exhibition, but I had no clue what having an exhibition was about, really. And I kept, I got obsessed with doing these. And, uh, I mean, I'd get up at five in the morning and I'd do up to ten o'clock in the morning, it's five hours, and then I'd leave it for a few hours and I might go back, Them in the evening, and I'd see what I need to correct on that. Why I didn't paint all along as well as I thought I needed a little room to do it in. But then I discovered I could paint in my kitchen, and that's my studio, the table. And I had no problem there because, uh, you know, the the sink was nearby for changing the water, and uh, that was my little studio in the kitchen, which worked very well. I enjoyed. What I enjoyed was if I was in the middle of painting I wanted to make a cup of tea. Sometimes I'd put it on the kettle and I wouldn't have this cup of tea till three hours later. But what I loved doing was pushing aside the paint and having my cup of tea and bit of toast in the middle of the painting. I felt God I'm getting very bohemian. <laughs> Jenny, I'm surprised it wasn't a glass of absinthe
0: she was having there. (laughs) Um, Usually things like a bad fall or illnesses or even just the ageing process dent a person's confidence. But Eileen's sort of
3: roaring ahead there. Is she a bit nervous about all this? She's a bit nervous, but she's absolutely thrilled at the same time. She's kind of buzzing about it. She she wouldn't say it herself, but I think she's really quite proud of uh, what she's done.
4: It's exciting and it's very daunting. Mm -hmm. And I get a bit apprehensive at times and think, how did I get into this? But anyway, I'm there now and I've decided I wanted to see it through because I've often thought of things and, you know, didn't see things through. So this will be one of the last things I'll see through, I'm sure.
0: Jenny, we all have regrets in life and things we didn't see through. That's actually a rather poignant statement there it is, yeah. at the end.
3: Um, one final thing I, I asked Eileen about um, was whether she had any advice for anyone out there who might feel something similar, like they haven't seen things through in life, and if there's something they've always wanted to do, but they might not have the confidence to do it, and this is what she had to say.
4: Well, I would say go first, because all I'm sorry is that I didn't do it sooner, you know but I didn't have the confidence or think I'd be able to do it, to be honest with you. But now, I mean, it's the one thing that gives me terrific pleasure. I really get great pleasure and relaxation from it. I would say never put it off, go for it. If I had my time back, I'd have gone for it much sooner than now. Well, that's it for
0: today. And Eileen Toomey is one of the most inspirational people I've heard on here for a while. The very best of luck to her with her exhibition this weekend. Also, thanks very much to Mona Alta for speaking to me earlier. And we wish Rahaf peace and happiness for our future, as indeed to all the women on the show today and to everyone who's listening to us. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and you can always find us on irishtimes.com with lots of other good shows like Worldview and Inside Politics. You can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on the Women's Podcast at IrishTimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and Jennifer Ryan, with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Kathy Sheridan, and until next time, thanks for listening.